0: Hey, get your Bible out. Open it up with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. If you go to the middle of your Bible and hang left, uh, you'll run into it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're going to be landing today. And we're starting a new series where we'll be in Nehemiah now for uh, several weeks together. So you're going to get used to this really amazing Old Testament book. All right. Uh, several years ago, I remember going on a day trip with a friend of mine who leads a large hospital in Dallas. And when you go on a road trip, you learn a lot about people. And we talked about his, his background growing up. We talked about uh, him playing college football for a little bit. Uh, and we also talked a little bit about what led him to healthcare as a as a field, as, as his uh, career. And he told me a story that I've never forgotten. He said, Craig You may not know this, but when I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with cancer and I, I was able to, to get through it. God healed me out of it, but but he said I went through some pretty difficult treatments and uh, it took a while but finally went to remission and and he said when I went through that experience I, I knew God was calling me to health care. And it was never a career for me. It has always been a calling. You know as I think back on him and what he said to me that day, I think about people that are passionate about what they do. People that are fired up. You know the people you talk to them what they do and they're they're gonna talk your leg off. You know the people that are really fired up about what they do. Almost every time there is a story behind what they do. There is a reason why they do what they do. You talk to a teacher and you say, why are you a teacher? Why do you, why do you put up with difficult students and many times difficult parents, right? Uh, why do you stay up late grading papers and increasing amount of uh, of expectation to your performance? Why do you do all that and you don't make a whole lot of money? Why do you do that day in and day out? And if you listen long enough you'll hear them say something like, uh, well, you know, I had a teacher one time. That really changed my life. Or, you know, if it wasn't for education, I would never have gotten out of that bad neighborhood. Or uh, I had this one teacher that really believed in me, and he, he believed in me, and, and that's why I push forward. There's always a story behind what they do. There's a motivation. There's a, a passion. Uh, there's something there. Same thing, you talk to police or fire. Why do you run in to harm's way when, uh, to save people that don't even know you, maybe don't even care about you, because there's a reason behind it. There's a story uh, behind it. Anybody that you find that is passionate about what they do, there's a story behind it. Now what we're going to look at today is we're going to see what was behind this man named Nehemiah. This man who was one of, probably arguably one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. He's, he ranks up there with Moses. He ranks up there uh, with Joshua, one of these great battle leaders. He ranks up there and that echelon of leadership. What was behind it? What motivated him? There was a story. There was a reason. There was something that drove him. And we're going to find out what that is. And not only that, we're going to come face to face with what drives us as a church to do what we do. All right. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're just beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. The words of Nehemiah son of Hekeliah, during the month of Keslev, in the 20th year when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And he said to them, he said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. I'll stop right there for just a minute. The best days of Israel were under the days of King David and King Solomon. King David fortifying the boundaries. King Solomon bringing them into great prosperity and wealth. But after Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom that would be called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The southern kingdom possessed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Over the course of time, both kingdoms became enthralled with idols. God sent multiple prophets to warn them, multiple opportunities to turn back. And consequently, neither one of them did. The northern kingdom eventually fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., And then the southern kingdom fell at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC and were hauled off into exile. Now that date, 586 BC, is an important date. It's important because one of the prophets that warned them of this coming uh, catastrophe was a prophet named Jeremiah. He's often called the weeping prophet because he wept over the waywardness of the nation and he, and he wept over their ensuing uh, demise. And he made a statement. He, he gave a prophecy given by God through Jeremiah that when the people of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom were exiled into Babylon that they would be there for 70 years. When, when Jerusalem fell, that started the clock on the 70-year timeline. Now what we know is that while Israel, while while the kingdom of Judah was in in, uh, exile under Babylon, the Babylonians fell to the Medo-Persian Empire and King uh, Cyrus uh, ordered them or uh, released many of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And actually, that was completed in five sixteen B.C. And if you're doing your math, that's exactly seventy years later. This is one of the great prophecies fulfilled uh, in Scripture. Now, you may be saying, "Well, Craig, uh, thanks for all that. We we didn't come here for a history lesson, all right? Uh, but we need a history lesson." Turn to your neighbor, and say, "You needed that, okay? You need a history lesson." You're, here's why: because history is His story. History is a working of God in our times, in our situations, to bring about His perfect purpose. And we see that uh, in the nation of Israel. We see that even in our own lives. You know, how many times we feel like God has forgotten us, right? Have you ever felt that way? God's forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. God, God's just abandoned me to my circumstances. I, I wonder what the Israelites were feeling when they were in, in Babylon at year 30 or year 40. They probably thought, well man, God doesn't even care about us. We pray and pray. God doesn't respond. God doesn't answer. It wasn't His time yet. But in due time, And in due season, God was working his purpose in his timing for his people. And listen, if you're here today and you're saying, I just feel like, you know, I pray and pray and pray and God doesn't answer. I'm seeking God for this one thing in my life and it hasn't come true. Listen, God is working out his perfect timing in in his people uh, to his determined end. And you can trust him. You can trust him, he's faithful. So let's get back to uh, Nehemiah. Verses 1 through 3 tell us basically what is happening. Uh, Nehemiah is a Jew. And he is serving the Persian king Artaxerxes. And he serves, verse 11 at the very end of the chapter, tells us some important information that he is a cupbearer for the king. Now a cupbearer wasn't just a butler for the king. Part of his role was to taste the food of the king before he ate it, to be sure it wasn't poisoned, So you're literally putting your life on the line. But also it meant that he had great access to the king. Most commentary, uh, commentaries today say that Nehemiah really served more almost like a chief of staff or like a high cabinet member. He was an advisor to the king. And he had a very prominent uh, position. Uh, Listen, you think about it. God put this Jewish man in this high-ranking position for a certain purpose. It's much like what God did with Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? God put him second to Pharaoh in a certain place, in a certain time, for a certain purpose. Think about Daniel. God put him in a high-ranking position in Babylon for a certain place and a certain purpose. And here in the same way, God put Nehemiah second in command in a high-ranking position for a certain purpose and place and time. You know, I really believe that God puts you in certain places for a reason. Don't you? I believe God puts you in a certain place. I believe the position you have right now where you work is by design. God has you there for a purpose. God has given you influence for a purpose. God has given you resources to to put into play for kingdom purposes. God has you right where you are uh, for a reason. And that's where God had Nehemiah, right where he was for a reason. Notice it says that he was in the city of Susa. Susa was a capital city of Persia. It was also the winter residence of the king of Persia. And this event took place in the month of Keslev, which is, would be our modern day, mid-November, mid-December coming up at the time that we're in right now. And while he was there in Susa, serving in his prominent position during the winter months, while the king was there, he received a report. Remember years before... Uh, King Cyrus had allowed some group of the remnant of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so now there's a report coming back from them to see how it's going. And he hears a report, but it's a bad report. He hears a report that while the temple is built, that the city is still in ruins. That the wall around the city is in ruins, it's collapsed, and the gates of the city are burned. In other words it's basically the city is desolate. The temple is there but the work that began years and years ago have now stalled out. About 70 years now since the temple has been built and now it's it's just stalled out and the people are living outside the city and their surrounding nations are laughing at Jerusalem. Now this breaks his heart. I mean he envisioned that when they went back that they would rebuild the temple they rebuild the city and once again Jerusalem would be a shining city on a hill but now it's just the laughing stock of everyone around them oh that's your God <laughs> that's your God's city that's your temple Hmm. some God you have and so look at what look at his response look at verse four he says when I heard these words I sat down and wept I mourned for a number of days separate right there he sat down and he cried. When was the last time you sat down and cried? See, this, this is his response. He mourned not just for an afternoon. He mourned for days and days and days. He mourned over the condition of his people. He mourned over the condition of the city of Jerusalem. He mourned, I think more importantly, the fact that, that the glory of God and the name of God was being maligned among the, the other nations. And something began to stir up within him. Something began to well up within him that this isn't right, that this cannot continue, that somebody's got to do something. And what welled up within Nehemiah is what I call divine discontent. All right? Divine discontent. Divine, you say, well, what is divine discontent? Well, divine discontent is a feeling you get when... uh, when something uh, is not as it should be, when something is not over as it should be, and you're overwhelmed with the sense that something's got to change. That something has got... Uh, to change. You can no longer just stand by and do nothing. Maybe maybe you see an injustice and you say that's wrong and something's got to change with that. Or you see a suffering and you say somebody's got to do something about that. Or you see some brokenness in the world and you say you know I just can't stand by. Well that just continues to happen. That is what we call a divine uh, discontent. Before anything great happens God stirs up in a person divine discontent. And by the way, you see this all the way through the Bible. You think uh, just, just do a cursory look and you'll see it happen. Here's King David. He's a little boy. I mean, he's a, he's a young man at this time. He's going to take lunch to his brothers that are on the battlefield. And when he shows up, he sees this great giant named Goliath standing in front of everybody, defying God, defying the nations of Israel, and nobody's doing anything about it. And David's like, hey, Isn't somebody gonna do something about that? I mean, no, we can't just sit by and let that happen. And as you know, uh, history uh, tells us that he marched out there with a rock and a slingshot and the power of God. It started with divine discontent. Somebody's got to do something. Same thing with Moses, right? Moses sees his people being brutalized by the Egyptians day after day after day. And finally he's walking the streets and he sees one Egyptian soldier just beating to a pulp uh, at one of his Jewish brothers. And he says, somebody's got to do something. And he intervenes and he fights with the Egyptian and eventually kills the Egyptian. And then he's on the run, right? But then God speaks to him through a burning bush and he says, Moses, that, that that angst in your heart because your people are being brutalized, that's in my heart. And we can't stand by and not do anything. Moses, you're gonna go and set my people free. It started with this divine discontent. Think about Gideon, right? Here's Gideon. He's in his village and they're putting up all these pagan altars everywhere. And he's wondering, hey, isn't anybody gonna do anything about this? Uh, no, no, no. Nobody's gonna do anything about it. But, uh, Given the promise and a visit from God, uh, Gideon went out in the middle of the night and tore down the idols and faced what would come, a massive army with only a handful of men and God brought the victory. See, it always starts with divine discontent. Somebody's got to do something. We can't just sit by and not do anything. That's a divine uh, discontent. Divine discontent is when the things that break God's heart uh, breaks your heart and you can no longer stand by and do nothing. I think about Mike. Mike uh, was a seminary student in in Fort Worth and he would often go downtown and he saw a growing homeless population. And he thought to himself, hey, you know, these people are made in the image of God. This is somebody's son, somebody's daughter. These are people that God loves. We need to be loving them and sharing the gospel. And and this stirred up in his heart. Somebody's got to do something. I can't just sit by and not do anything. And so he started taking food down in the water garden areas uh, where many homeless would gather. And then he then he started sharing the gospel. Soon he, he was able to get a bus and, and load up a lot of them take them to a church and then that began to grow and grow and grow and finally uh, God provided a, a, a roughly abandoned old church building that they were able to renovate with some donations and started what is called the Beautiful Feet Ministry downtown Fort Worth that serves thousands of homeless. It all started with a seminary student that had a divine discontent to say somebody's gotta go do something. I can't just sit here and do nothing. All of this begins with a divine discontent. Jot this down. A divine discontent is what drives you to make a difference in the world. A divine discontent is what drives you uh, to make a difference in the world. And this was Nehemiah's divine discontent moment right? He, he's sitting in this uh, posh place, right? He's got this great job, amazing benefits, right? Uh, he, he's got this prominent position and yet he hears that his people are struggling, that the glory of God is in disgrace. And he's like, hey somebody's got to do something. Now listen, when God begins to stir up divine discontent in you, it is going to drive you first to your knees. And this is what happens. Nehemiah is so overrun and heartbroken that he begins to fast and to pray. And I want you to see how he prays, all right? Check this out. First off, he praises God. Uh, Look at verse five. He said, I I said the Lord, uh, the God of heavens, the awe, great and awe inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Now, stop right there. Uh, in Nehemiah's prayer, he first off praises God. Right? Look at the language God, you're great. God, you're awe inspiring. Uh, God, you're gracious. God, you're amazing. God, you're greater than any problem that we have. Listen, when you you start off praising God, even when you're in crisis, that does something to your mind because it reminds you that God's greater than your problem. God's bigger than your problem. All right, listen to me. God's bigger than your problem. God, I love, that's why I love this song that we just sang. He reigns above it all, right? He reigns above, over the universe and over every human heart. There's no higher name. Jesus, you reign above it all. What that means is that He is sovereign and in charge over all things. And when we are in crisis, we have to reorient our mind to see how great God is. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, verse 1. He said, indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save his ear is not too deaf to hear. In other words, God is more than able to intervene. He reigns above it all. That's why we read in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask Or imagine, and so Nehemiah just starts off with praise. God, this looks bad. This looks really bad. God, my heart is broken. But I know that you're reigning over it all. God, I know that you're in control. God, I know that no matter how bad this situation is, that you are greater than it. And God, you can hear. And God, you can intervene. And your arm is not too short. And your ear is not too deaf to hear me. God, you can hear me. And you can move. And you can do something. That's how Nehemiah prays. That's how we need to pray. Look at the next thing he does. He confesses his sin. Look at verse 6. Let your eyes be open. Be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray. Look at it. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you. We have not kept the command statutes and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Not only does he praise God, but he also comes clean with his own confession. He said, God, I have sinned against you. We have not kept your law. We have not done what you told us to do. This is the whole reason for the exile is because we failed to do what you told us to do. And now God, even still, we are not doing what you told us to do. He's not confessing sins of multiple generations back that have now been corrected. He's confessing present sins. Sins that he is doing and his people are doing that are breaking God's laws. It won't be until after Nehemiah does his work and the city is rebuilt that Ezra reinstates the law again in Jerusalem. They're still lawbreakers. And you know, this is important because Nehemiah here is taking responsibility for the condition that he's in. You know, many times we face situations and they are totally out of our control. The circumstances we have just came upon us, right? We, we didn't have any part to play in it. It just happened to us. But sometimes the trouble that we're in, we've contributed to by our own waywardness, by our own choices, by our own sinfulness. And that was the case of Israel. And so Nehemiah takes responsibility. Now let me tell you why this is important. If you will never take responsibility for your own contribution and your own sinfulness, then you will never take responsibility to fix it. And to be a part of the solution. Nehemiah owned it. He owned it. He owned his own sin. He owned his own part of the problem. And now he's about to own his part of the solution. Do you confess your own sin before God? Do you confess even our own waywardness as a nation and our contribution to that? Listen, there will never come revival to our nation until it first comes in you and in me. It starts with us. So here's Nehemiah. He's praying, God, I know you're great. God, I know you can hear. God, I know you can move. And God, I know I don't deserve it, right? Because we're lawbreakers and God, we deserve everything we're getting. But then he makes this appeal and he appealed to the promises of God. Look at, look at verse 8. He said, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That happened. But, verse 9, if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles are banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants, your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, don't you remember Well, you promised that if we, w- if we were wayward, you would scatter us to the wind? And that's what's happened, God. And we, we deserve it. God, we're not arguing with you. We deserve it. But God, do you also remember that you said if we turn back to you and if we cry out to you that you would restore us back, God? Please remember that, God. These are your people. This is, these are the people you brought out of Egypt. These are your people that you sustained in the wilderness. These are your people, God. Remember your promise. You know, it's interesting. I I don't believe that Nehemiah is concerned that God has forgotten his promise. You know, God doesn't forget stuff. I forget stuff, right? I don't know where I put my keys. I left my phone. You know, I I forget my head if it wasn't attached, right? I mean, I'm that way. I forget stuff all the time. God doesn't forget. Oh, did I make a promise? No, no, no. God remembers. Nehemiah needed to remember. In this prayer, Nehemiah was just remembering the promises that God had given him. Herbert Lockyer uh, is a prolific writer and pastor. And he wrote a book called All the Promises in the Bible. And he ascertained that there are 7,147 promises that God has given you in the scripture. Isn't that something? Seven, over 7,000 promises. Promises that he'll be with you, promises that he'll give you wisdom, promises of his grace and his mercy, of his provision for your life. Let me ask you something. Are you grabbing hold of those promises? Are you remembering the promises that God has given? Nehemiah he had this divine discontent moment. He, he saw what was happening in Jerusalem. And he was something well up within him that we just can't stand by and just let that happen. And so God's beginning to stir something in him that, that is going to lead him to do something great. And, he, and he's broken over this. And he's weeping over this. And he's crying out to God, God, you can do it. God, we don't deserve it. But God, I'm remembering your promise that if we trust you, that God, you'll move You'll move. And then look at what he does in verse 11. He says, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Now, who's the this man he's talking about? What is he going to do today? Well, This divine discontent was driving Nehemiah to his knees. But he was about to get up off of his knees and do something. Something that would be incredibly risky. Something where he would put all of his chips out on the table. Something that would, would, could cost him everything. Not only his position, not only his, his, his wealth, but even his own life. Nehemiah was about to go to the king that he had access to and ask for a leave of absence to go and be a part of the solution to this problem. Nehemiah was about to take a great leap of faith. Now the rest of the book of Nehemiah tells us what he did. Tells us what happened. And we're going to get into that here very, very soon. But I want you to understand that We all have to come to a point where we say, you know what, I can't, things can't remain as they are. I can't just stand here and do nothing. I I have to cultivate this divine discontent that God has put in my heart and in your heart. Listen, um, I remember several years ago, a divine discontent moment in my own life. I was a young pastor, pastoring the first church uh, in Oklahoma City. The church was a great church. It, it was in a uh, it, it had red brick and a big tall white steeple and white Corinthian columns and stained glass window. You know you've seen a church. And it was a strong church but over the years it was beginning to wear. The neighborhoods had changed around it. It was a very ethnically diverse neighborhood. Uh, many of the people were leaving the inner city and going out to the suburbs. And what was once a strong church was beginning to show the stress of all the change. All the churches around that church were dying. I mean withering up and dying. I came there as a young pastor and I I, I thought, man, I'm going to get in here and we're going to preach and lead and get this thing going. And after three years, I had pretty much emptied my bag of tricks and it was still right where I got it. And I didn't know what to do. I was about 33 years old, didn't know what to do. So I called a consultant. I never forget what this consultant said. He said, Craig, we're going to do a CAT scan of your church. I thought that sounded so cool. And I'm going to show you exactly what's wrong with it and how to fix it. I'm like, come on. So he did all the data analysis. He did the focus groups. uh, He talked to staff. He talked to key volunteers. He looked at trends. He charted and graphed everything. And then he laid the report on my desk. And I can remember sitting at my desk, no one was in the office, and I'm just staring at it. And I'm thinking, this could be either really good or really bad. It could be great. I mean, he could just come up with one, two, three, what we need to do. Or he could say something worse. So I took a deep breath and I opened it up and I started to read the report. And basically the report said to me that there's nothing you can do, that this church is going to continue to decline and eventually die. I shut the report, and I slipped down onto my knees, and then down on my face in the ground, and I began to pray. And that prayer said something like this, God, I don't know what to do. God, surely you did not bring me here to hold the hand of a dying church. Surely this is not your great dream for this church that it wither and die God surely this is not what you want and that led to a season of prayer. I remember our staff getting up at 5.30 in the morning and we'd meet at the church house and we'd pray and we'd pray. God, show us our sin. God, show us what needs to happen. We called on godly men in the church to pray with us and, and we prayed and sought the heart of God. And out of that season of prayer, God began to burden some things in my heart. God began, this was my divine discontent moment. Somebody's got to do something, God. We, this is not as it should be. God, surely this is not your plan. Coming out of that, God began to convict me of some things. One is he convicted me. He said, Craig, you're not really making disciples. I mean, you're preaching sermons. You're running programs, but you're not really investing in people that that change and invest in others that will change. You're not doing what I told you to do. And I was convicted. That was true. I'd never seen it done before. I didn't know how to do that. but, But I determined to be obedient to God and we started discipling a core group of leaders and started discipling others and started discipling others. Let me tell you what happened. What happened was these these new uh, uh Vigorous, uh, uh, passionate disciples began to spill out into the community. We said, man, we've got to do something about our neighborhood. We've got dilapidated places. We've got schools. that don't have any help. We need to do something. We started pouring into schools and helping schools and doing after-school programs and refurbishing locker rooms and power spraying bathrooms and loving on teachers. And they were opening up their doors to us. And we started we said well we need to build a building here so we can really do care for our community and so we raised money and this church didn't have any money i mean didn't have any money I And mean, it was like it was like uh the jar remember that keeps refilling you know it was like that it was like God's provision and and all of a sudden we built that and we started ministering to local community and then these passionate disciples said well man we need to start planting churches and so we planted a Hispanic congregation and a Korean congregation and a Vietnamese congregation and an international congregation and in, in between services and our buildings now what used to be all one color now was looked like the United Nations. I mean we had, we had every nation and language being spoken pouring out through our facilities we multiplied to another campus, we were planting other churches. We were doing it around the world. And I looked back years later and that consultant said, this church is going to die. And the church had just come alive. And it had just come alive. And how, how is that? Well, it started with a divine discontent moment. Now folks, that same divine discontent is in me Today. You see, I think it breaks God's heart when he looks at churches that don't make disciples. I think it breaks God's heart when he sees communities that are unchanged by the churches in those communities. I think it breaks God's heart when churches never multiply and churches are not planted. When churches only look inward and never look outward. When people are only in for what they take and not what they can give. I think that breaks the heart of God. And it certainly breaks my heart. So if you wonder, Craig, why in the world do you always kind of pound on, man, making disciples? Why do you do that? Or would you ever wonder, man, why are we always getting out in the community and serving in our local area? And why do we have hundreds of people doing this and hundreds of people doing that? Why do we do it? Why are we into church planting? Why do we talk about, why do we raise so much money? And you challenge us to give over and atop generously to church planting. I will take you all the way back to that divine discontent moment that still stirs in my heart because I believe it is the heart of God. And so as we launch into this series, we're, you know, we're moving into our season of the big give. And our big give moment is about plant, we're going to be planting a church in Israel. We're going to go all the way back to where it all started. We're planting a church in Israel. We're planting a church in the Galilee. And we're committed right here to being strong here in this church so that we can minister our community and minister the families here as well as the churches around the world. But I want you to know where it started. It started just like Nehemiah with a bad report, with a season of prayer, crying out to God and a divine discontent that we simply cannot stand by and do nothing. That this is our time to trust God in it. Why don't you bow your heads with me for just a minute. Probably the greatest example of divine discontent is Jesus. That Jesus, when he saw you in your waywardness, when he saw you in your fallenness, because of your sin separated from God, because of your sin without any way of being righteous before him, that Jesus simply could not stand by and do nothing but he heard the words of his father and he came. He set aside the glory of his pre-incarnate state and he took on the form of a human and the form of a servant born in a lowly manger in Bethlehem, walking the dusty streets of Israel, declaring that the kingdom of God has come. And that same Jesus, motivated by his divine discontent for your soul and your redemption went to a cross and on that cross he was nailed and on that cross he bled and died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven and right with God he was buried and on the third day he rose again in power and he says if anyone come to me I will make you right with the father No one can come to the Father except through me, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so today we come with the divine discontent in our hearts because it's Jesus that stirs it in our hearts. Why we do what we do as a church is because Jesus is our king. He reigns over it all and he is stirring our hearts to be broken for the things that break his heart and to be motivated by the things that motivate him. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And if you have not received your elements as you walked in the door, if you would just raise up your hand and keep it up, then we'll have somebody bring you those elements uh, right here. We've got several right over on this side here. Just keep keep it up until you get it. Uh, they're, They're coming to you now. But as you prepare your heart, ask God, Um, God, what are you stirring in my heart? So I'm all the way in the very, very back, back row, back here. There you go. Just ask God, God, what are you stirring in my heart? God, what are you leading me to do? Father, I thank you for your unfailing love for us. God, thank you that you did not, Lord Jesus, remain on your eternal throne in heaven and leave us to our own selves, but that you chose to come and to redeem and to restore. And so, Lord, as we take this communion together, we remember all that you have done. Remember your great love for us and we worship you. Matthew 26 verse 26 says as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat it, this is my body which is broken for you. So if you'll take that piece of bread and we remember together. Verse 27, then he took the cup and after giving thanks he gave it to them and said drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins but I tell you I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup and remember Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would not leave our hearts calloused or insensitive to to you. But Lord, I pray in all of us, you would stir up divine discontent where we see your heart broken. Lord, may our heart break. Where we see things not as it should be. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to own it and be a part of the solution. Lord, I pray you'd raise up Nehemiahs among us. Nehemiahs among us that that live for you, that are passionate about what you're passionate about, and that as a church, we would be the church you have called us to be, not inward-focused, not uh, wayward in sound doctrine, not, not uh, prayerless or without obedience, but God, I pray that we would be people in this place that are passionate, prayerful, uh, fervent men and women, burdened with a divine discontent that will make disciples to the ends of the earth, that will impact our local community with compassion, that will plant churches, Lord, among the nations until you come. Lord, surely this is your heart. Now fill us with your spirit to bring it to pass. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,